This is the Big Pond. I'm Katie Davis. We know the history of World War II, and still when someone tells his or her own story, we always learn. Thomas Bergenthal saw the Nazi concentration camps, Auschwitz and Sachsenhausen, through a child's eyes. He was separated from his parents in the camps and managed to survive by his wits and luck. And that is what he called his first book, A Lucky Child. And Thomas Bergenthal turned his luck into a force for change. Begin with a bicycle and a pony. The boy learns to ride them both in the dust of the camp, out of sight of the SS guard. Later, the Polish army gives him the circus pony and a uniform. It is 1945, and he rides to Berlin with the Polish army to fight the last German soldiers. He was Tommy then, six years old at first, then 10 and 11, born to German-Jewish-Polish parents. And the family was forced into a ghetto in Kielce, Poland. Instructions to the district chiefs of the general government. Jewish residence areas are to be formed in the towns designated. All Jews, without exception, are to be prohibited from living outside the boundaries of the Jewish residence areas. The family was forced into a ghetto in Kielce, Poland. And he can remember his father shaving at the kitchen sink while orders were shouted from the street. I observed my my father, who, whose great strength was that, that you could see that he always thought things out before he did it. And he would, uh, would not be sort of cowed into running, but he would make his decision and then and stick by it. And that, that was something that I noticed that, that a lot of people got killed or were caught because they acted too fast. They didn't sort of take account of the environment and then act. And that's something he did. He was a master at that. When they dissolved the ghetto and sent most of the people to, to Treblinka, this is in Kielce. This is in Kielce, in Poland. Um, I was still very much sort of part of, I would do what my parents wanted me to do, and I would be the child that did what, what had to be done. And in '43, I sort of began to be aware that I had to, even though I was still with my parents, that I had to do certain things on my own in order to survive, such as... Um, well, for example, when we were in 1943, we were in a work camp. And when that camp was uh, dissolved, the initial thing was that I had to hide in order not to be seen by the Gestapo because they were taking all of the children away. And then uh, what happened, I actually survived this. They saw me, of course. We were all lined up on a, one of these fields in Kilsa. And my, they, they started pulling me, and my father pulled me back. And then my father took me to the chief of the Gestapo, who was standing in front of everybody, and said uh, to him, this is my son. 
And this man looked at me and I said to him in German, I can work. And, uh, you know, it just came out of me. How do you say it in German? Ich kann arbeiten. And his response in, in German was, na, das wollen wir mal sehen. We, we, let's see. And he let me live. And this was, uh, I, I was the only one of the children from that, from Kelse, who survived that way. There were two others who hid in the house where they took all of the children. And, and that was sort of the beginning of my awakening to the fact that uh, I was going to have to, to save my own life. And in that case, instead of running away or trying not to be noticed, you went right into the belly of the beast. You went right face to face with the danger. But that, in part, that was really my father's doing, who, who, who had sort of analyzed the Germans <laughs> and knew that you had to often confront them uh, in, in certain ways and that they had great sort of difficulty with their own propaganda and with the reality. Here was a kid who spoke German the way their own children spoke German, who didn't look as Jewish as they perceived Jews to look from the Sturmer, which was the German sort of propaganda newspaper. And suddenly to have this kid talk to them, it personalized it. And after that, uh, it uh, in Auschwitz again, the, the first time when I, when I worked for the Kapo, um, the Kapo was somebody my father had known before, because it was a man who had been in the ghetto with us in Kelse and was shipped out of the ghetto to Auschwitz two years before we we did. So by the time we came to to Auschwitz, he was a capo, quite a brutal one, but he treated his friends well. And he sort of took me in. It was a terrible sort of society <laughs> to live, but uh, that helped. I also, in Kelse still, I worked as an errand boy for the the man who ran the, that work camp. And I must say, I don't know how that came about. Uh, but what I remember is I used to sit outside his office and um, used, he would listen to the radio and I would listen and uh, would sort of report to my parents on the news because we had, we had no news, of course. So I became the, the one who tried to memorize all the news that I heard on the German radio and reported to my father and, and mother, and I suppose through them to the other people in the camp. And I even reported on the fact that Mussolini had been captured. At that point, a young boy, you might have felt angry or even intense hatred for the Germans. What was it like to work for one, one-on-one, -on -one as, as an errand boy? And, and how did you cope with that? You know, I didn't have to cope at all. I mean, it's the curious thing. Um, he, was, uh, he, was a very, he was very nice to me. He, he never mistreated me. But he was quite brutal. He would beat people if, they, uh, if he saw them not working. And so I had figured out uh, he, he would do that. And so when he made his inspection tours, I would usually sort of run ahead and make certain motions. He had a hat with a feather. And I would uh, 
motion to people that the feather was coming. <laughs> so everybody started uh, to work. So be because I had seen him beat a lot of people if he caught them not uh, not working, but he wasn't. Uh, he wasn't. Never abused me. Never mistreated me. It's strange, you know. As a child. I remember he used to have a visit from some officer of the SS who would arrive with a bicycle and he would hand me the bicycle to take the bicycle and put it in the bicycle stand. And believe it or not, in all this environment in which we lived, I learned to ride the bike with this SS man's bicycle. You know, a child is a child. What did Auschwitz sound like? Like when you were there, what, what did it sound like? Well, Auschwitz, I should tell you, I went back with my wife uh, years later and tried to tell her what, how different it was. When, when she and I went to Auschwitz, there was grass on the ground, birds were flying, the air was fresh. Auschwitz was just the opposite. There was con the continuous stench of burned bodies. No, no grass was growing. No birds were flying. That was Auschwitz. And barracks, row after row in barracks, and people walking around who were dead people walking with just skin and bones. Uh, and the SS guards, uh, you know, lording it over, beating people uh, who didn't do what they were supposed to do or if they were just in the way. Uh, that was, that was the... And of course, you knew that every few weeks there would be a selection and people who were, looked sick, old, were taken away, children, and ended up in the crematoriums and the gas chambers. And that was the biggest, and you could see the gas chamber uh, from where we were, uh, from the barracks. So, you know, you knew, you knew what, was await, what awaited you. I was in, at liberation in the concentration camp of Sachsenhausen, which is about 20 kilometers outside of Berlin. And uh, by that time, I had survived the death march, but lost. I had was had frostbites and uh, was operated actually in the in an infirmary of Sachsenhausen, and I was there. I had my two toes amputated, and then uh, when the war was coming to a close, uh, the Germans decided to evacuate the camp, and but those of us who couldn't really walk very much and some people were much sicker than I we were left behind in the in the hospital and the assumption was that they were going to come and shoot all of us this was sort of we all expected that was going to happen I was able to to move and I had a crutch or a cane or something and uh, it, was, it was a strange after the uh, evacuation of the camp it was very strange, it was very quiet. The next morning I got up, and it was very, very quiet, except for the shooting coming closer. 
I, I crawled out, went out, and looked up and saw in the entrance of the camp, over the entrance, on the inside, they always had a machine gun mounted with SS guards uh, sitting on it. And there was nobody there. The machine gun was empty. And uh, then we just waited. And suddenly, sort of in the, I think it was the early afternoon, we heard a, the gong. You know, the camp had a, had a big bell in the middle of, the, of this field. And a Russian soldier was ringing, had driven in with a jeep and was ringing the bell saying, you're free. Tell us about that. Uh, first, you um, met some soldiers, and then what happened? I, I must say, it's hard for me to sort of remember very clearly how it came about that they took me with them. Uh, but they did, and they took me. They they were members of the first Polish division, the so-called Kosciuszko division, which had come from Russia. These were people apparently who had been at least the officers, members of the Polish army in 39, who were then shipped to Siberia. And when the Russians needed uh, troops, they were <laughs> brought back and given a chance to fight uh, in the Polish army under Russian control. Uh, and I, I was, uh, so this was the group. Uh, and I was in the, the, the soldiers who took me in, uh, they were members of the scout company, so we were sort of the f forefront of the of the of the division. Um, they took me in. They gave me, they made me a small uniform, um, and I had shoes. They even gave me a small revolver, not a revolver, uh, automatic uh, pistol. Uh, I, I had a, they had found a circus horse someplace, a, a pony, uh, and because much of the army was still uh, horse-drawn, they had uh, supplies, the Russian and Polish army were still brought in by horse-drawn uh, carts. There was a lot of, lot of horses, and I had my horse, and I could keep up uh, with the soldiers. All of this, I thought, was going to lead to my being reunited with my parents. And I never even thought that this wasn't going to happen. This was all part of a process. Um, and in the meantime, I, had, I could eat, and I, I no longer had to be afraid, and I had fun. The first real military situation I got into was, uh, I would say, I liberate, helped liberate Berlin. Uh, we came into Berlin while the battle for Berlin was still raging. And uh, we were camped in, in the park uh, near uh, the sort of uh, rocket artillery that the, that the Russian had were shooting over at the Germans, and the Germans were, were shooting back. And I, I slept in an armored uh, car because it was, it was a lot of still a lot of fighting going on. And as we drove into Berlin, uh, you could see there were Russian soldiers, dead soldiers on one side, Germans on the other. This had been, and and the battle was still raging for about two days, but. Uh, then, of course, the, the Germans surrendered, and we actually took German prisoners uh, when Berlin fell. 
and I was reunited with my mother in Germany. And uh, seeing, we, we, we had a balcony in that town, this is my mother's hometown in Germany, in Göttingen, and sitting on the balcony on a Sunday and seeing the German families taking a walk, and my father hadn't come back. And at that point, you know, the desire of sort of thing, when I first came back, oh, I would love to mount a machine gun on that uh, balcony and shoot all of them. No, I felt very much that I was Jewish, but uh, it's strange. My family was not a religious family at all. I had no religious education at all. Uh, religion and Judaism became part of survival for me. And then I think that was part of what my father brought me, my family brought me up. The Germans wanted to kill us because we were Jews. And we were going to win this battle with them as Jews, and we were going to survive. Uh, and so the, the Judaism that was instilled in me was the Judaism that said we were going to win over the Germans. We're not going to let them kill us. And we were going to be proud of the fact that we can survive. Remember my father always saying, we are going to be alive long after they are six feet under. <laughs> We're in my office at the George Washington University Law School, which is in Washington, D.C., very close to the World Bank and to the IMF and to the State Department. I've been here since first 1989. Then I left for 10 years to the International Court of Justice. And then we came back in 2010. This, this is the, the book I'm showing you now. It's called The International Protection of Human Rights, and it's co-authored by Professor Louis B. Sohn of the Harvard Law School and Thomas Bergenthal, me at the time when I was teaching at the State University of New York in Buffalo. And because it was, and it's dated 1973, I think, you'll have to verify it. Yes, 1973. And it's so big, it has, let me see how many pages. Well, it's obvious. Uh, close to 1,400 pages. And the reason it's so thick was because there was no other book to teach international human rights and very little happening in the field. So we had to collect a lot of stuff to show that there was something there. When do you remember becoming aware of law? Well, my father had studied law, so that was easy. Okay. <laughs> you know, I think since I, you know, I, I lost him early, uh, my mother survived, but, but my father didn't. But you know, the most gratifying thing is to, it's often occurred to me when I worked in, for example, when sitting on a, on a case or when investigating human rights violations in, uh, in El Salvador or now at the UN, to think that somebody who survived Auschwitz is given the opportunity uh, to be working in this field now. Uh, it's a wonderful, uh, it's a gift, it's, it's a blessing when you think about it, uh, that, uh, you know, that I've been given this opportunity.
for me, it, it's, you know, every time I sit on something that, that sort of brings back the memory, it, is, it, it seems to me to say, you know, it's almost as if uh, there was something written that I, I'm supposed to be doing this. And the irony, the, the poetic <laughs> justice of my doing this uh, comes back so often. It came back particularly in El Salvador, where so many things that I saw reminded me of what, what of the camps, from the massacres to to the executions. And uh, but to think, you know, that that I to think of the cold Polish winters and the tropics of uh, El Salvador, yet the same cruelties, uh, and for me to be able to to be involved in this. Uh, it boggles the mind in many ways. I'm not sure most people would make that connection unless they had had your experience in in the camps, that there was a kind of similar, I guess, brutality going on between treatment of people in the camps and what happened during the worst of the Civil War in El Salvador. Well, you know, it struck me long ago when I read Solzhenitsyn's books about the gulag that the, the, the unimaginative cruelty, it's always the same. You know, when you read what happened in the gulags, you, you say, gee, this is exactly what happened in the camps. And then in El Salvador, for example, when the only survivor there described the massacre, when she began talking, I could have finished the story for her. It's the same. I mean, the, there is no evil has sort of a, a monotone to it. And I don't know. I, that that is the thing that always strikes me, and that, that I just can't get over. Thomas Bergenthal is the author of A Lucky Child, a memoir of surviving Auschwitz as a young boy. He's working on a second book now about his six decades of human rights work around the world. He also works with the Committee on Conscience at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. This is Katie Davis for The Big Pond. Wunderbar together. You've been listening to The Big Pond, a series of dialogues between Germans and Americans, coming to you from PRX and the Goethe Institute.